All right, buckle up. This is going to be one of those messages. Here we go. 2 Samuel 11. What did you say? This is part 12. This is it. This is it. Part 12, Kings and Kingdoms. We can't cover everything, but we got to cover this. So I'm going to start by telling you this. When I was at the Harvard of the South OU for college, I um, unsurprisingly lived in the athletic dorm my freshman year, and my roommate was a guy who worked with the football team. That was his job because at the time he wanted to be a college football coach, and so he got kind of a behind-the-scenes view at OU of just a, a college football program. And I remember one of the things that he told me one day, as he's like, man, one observation I've made, I was just kind of asking what he was learning. He was like, so far, the biggest thing that I've learned, the biggest thing I've observed is there's such a difference between college level coaching and what I experienced in high school. And I was like, well, tell me about that. What do you mean by that? And he said, in high school, the coaches that he was particularly under would basically be like, they were, if they corrected you, they would just tell you what to do, but they wouldn't always tell you how to actually do it. And he said in college, what changed is he would see these coaches at such a depth of knowledge that they wouldn't just tell you what to do. They would actually get there and show you, hey, this is exactly how you do it. This is exactly where your foot should be. This is exactly where your eyes should be. This is how you do it. And it was interesting because I was thinking about that when it comes to reading the Bible and if I were to say, hey, raise your hand if you've heard in a church environment, camp environment, Christian school environment, that you should read your Bible. Probably everyone would raise their hand, right? Like, I don't think anyone would be like, oh my gosh, wait, really? That's shocking. But how many times have you actually been taught how to read the Bible? And that's where a lot of us get into trouble, is we will open it and we're like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what this means. And so I tell you that because that's actually the reason why we did this series, the reason why we did this series is because we think that the Old Testament in particular can be confusing. It can be like, I don't know what's going on. And we wanted you to learn how do you read it through experience, us walking you through it. So I'm just going to give you this right now because when you read the Bible, we don't do that just to check it off the list. We don't do it because it makes God happy with us. We do it because God already does love us and we get to meet with him. And so it's a privilege. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we get to. But a lot of us don't know where to start. And so in this series, this is what I've been doing every single week. If you want to know how do you meet with God when you read your Bible, this isn't everything, but this is a great kind of three little step thing that I do when I read the Bible. It's not a technique. It's just a mentality to help you see it rightly. And so one thing that I do is I, I say diagnosis. It's a diagnosis. It's, it shows you um, what you need. If you go to the doctor and they give you a diagnosis, they're saying, hey, this is your situation. This is what's wrong with you. And so what I do is when, when we've read First and Second Samuel every week, we've said, what struggles, what sins, what weaknesses, what situations do we have in common with the original people, with Saul, with Israel, with David? We're actually a lot like them. And so I'm looking for how does this passage diagnose me, my need? And the second thing is deliverance. How does God's grace come in in some way, and how does that point me ultimately to Jesus? So we've been doing this every single week. I've been showing you how it points to Jesus. And then the third thing is difference. How does that gospel truth affect our lives? And so one of the problems we'll run into, for example, when you're like, what does this have to do with anything, is we'll take a verse, 
and we'll just rip it out of context and we'll apply it to our lives. So it'll be a verse like, like flee sexual immorality, which is actually going to be the topic today. So buckle up. But that's a number three. That's a difference. You cannot separate that from one and two. Okay. Paul has just spent all these chapters talking about, hey, you're a sinner and Jesus came to save you. Therefore, one expression of what difference that makes in your life is that the way you handle sex is different than how the world does. It makes a difference. But if you rip it out of one and two, you're going to miss the gospel. You're going to miss how the gospel is actually what changes you. And so this whole series, what we've been doing, literally every week I've had the same, I've done the same thing. This is what I've done every single week. This is the secret, okay? And so when you read scripture, this is how you read it. And we're going to do it again today. And the reason why is because the Bible is not first a recipe book for good living. It is a revelation book of Jesus who is the answer to our bad living. And I say that because a lot of us go to the Bible and what we do is we try to find a verse that immediately applies to our life or we try to find an example. And we see these people like David, like Moses, and we say, man, I want to follow their example. Well, today is going to absolutely crush that. It's going to completely crush that. And you're going to see that these people in the Bible that we call heroes are actually not. There's only one hero in the Bible. And all these other people are sinners just like we are. And I'm going to show you that today. This story is going to end our series. We can't cover everything else, unfortunately, so I'd encourage you to do that. But I'll tell you that this event is going to really mess up a lot of the rest of David's life. This is, going to, this is a turning point in his life. What he does today is going to change the direction of his whole life. And the rest of the book after this is going to be really tragic. A lot of the things that happen in his life are extremely difficult because of what happens today. Now, the way that it ends is David basically singing the goodness of God. He basically, at the end of his life, celebrates how good and gracious God has been to him, which then leads to Solomon. But we already covered that. But today, this story, it's sad. It's kind of hard to talk about. But you're going to have to bear with it because it's going to lead us to hope. But we have to get through some hard things to be ready for hope. And what it's going to do is it's not just a story. It actually teaches us a lot about ourselves. And specifically, it's going to teach us about the power of sin and the power of grace. The power of sin and the power of grace. And so this is what it teaches us about the power of sin. We're going to walk through this first. It's going to teach us three things about the power of sin, and this is true for every single one of us today. I'm going to show it to you. Sin is deceptive, sin is destructive, and sin is deep. All right, so let me show you what I mean. This is 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip because we just can't cover everything, 14 to 17, just to get the gist of the story. So in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle— David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So there's your first hint, right? Is hey, it's the time when the kings go to battle, but David's not there. He stayed here. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So what's he doing? He's just chilling. He's being lazy. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house. This is a place you can actually go to in Israel, by the way, that he saw from the roof of a, uh, a roof, the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And you're like, oh gosh, you know where this is going. All right. David sent and inquired about the woman. So he didn't leave it. He got curious and he pursued it. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? We're going to talk about who he is. So David sent messengers. He doesn't stop there. 
They took her, she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, three scary words, I am pregnant, all right? And then David comes up with this scheme. He starts freaking out, and so this is what David does in verses 14 to 17. He basically is going to try to get the husband killed. That's going to be the strategy here, to try to wash away some evidence. And so he wrote a letter to Joab. Remember, that's the commander. He sent it by the hand of Uriah. So Uriah is literally carrying his death warrant, which is crazy. He doesn't even know it. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting in battle, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and followed Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Okay, this is crazy. And so Uriah was one of David's mighty men. I think there were like 37 of them. And they risked their lives. If you remember this, these are people who risked their lives for David when Saul was pursuing him. And therefore, David actually owes Uriah his life. But instead, the one who heroically killed Goliath, he humbly did not kill Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. He was reigning with skill and integrity. He's a called a man after God's own heart. And he said and meant things like Psalm 40, verse 8, when he says, I delight to do your will, O God. He said that and he meant it. He did this. And so the question is, how does that happen? a man who is one of the strongest followers of God who ever lived, how is he capable of committing adultery and then having the husband killed? How is it even possible? Okay, this, it's crazy. So let's walk through that because it's going to teach us three things about sin, how powerful it is. David's been doing awesome, right? He's been thriving, but then you notice that the story slows down and it gives you this impression, all right, of how David's sin builds. It shows you the process, and so the train starts slowly, but then it picks up steam really quickly, doesn't it? And this is going to teach us the first point, the, sin, the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is deceptive. And so what you see with David is his heart gets harder. The only time Bathsheba is called by her name is at the beginning of the story. The rest of the time, he doesn't call her even by her name. He's using her as an object. Doesn't even see her really as a person. And over time, what you see as the story keeps going is David, you don't even see emotional language. All you see is the actions. It's just coldness of his actions. And so this is not how God intended our relationships to be. He intended um, physical activity, we're going to talk about this in a second, to be for the, the covenant relationship of marriage. And so David, in this context, has ripped that out and is just trying to pursue the pleasure without making the covenant commitment. He also starts to live in deception. As he's walking away from life and towards death, he's living in deception. He tries to cover it. He tries to hide it. He tries to lie about it. And then one thing we see that we didn't read is with Uriah, he actually is kind of frustrated with Uriah. Like Uriah is being faithful and David gets kind of annoyed with him. Because one thing that happens is when we are living in sin, we get annoyed with people that are living faithfully. And you've probably seen this happen at school. Okay, so why, why does this teach us that sin is deceptive? This is a really graphic illustration. I'm sorry to use it, but it's going to make the point. Um, I think I've used this before. I don't remember if I used it here, but I'm going to use it again. And if it's my first time, 
brace yourselves. This is kind of an intense one. But the, uh, the Eskimos found a way to basically hunt polar bears that were dangerous. I don't know if any of you have heard this or if I've said it here. I know I've said this before. I just don't remember where I've said this. Um, That's the problem when you've been out of place for a while as you start. I'm like, I don't know if I've used that illustration, but I'm using it again. But I know I've used this somewhere. And basically what they would do is they would take a knife, okay? They would dip it in blood and they would freeze it, all right? And so a polar bear would look, they'd sniff, you know, and they'd see that and they'd be like, oh, it's blood. That's awesome probably like a dead animal. Polar bears like blood, by the way. So polar bear, they'd go up to the blood. They're not seeing the knife. They'd start licking on that thing. All right. Well, what happens is because it's frozen, it's like a little blood popsicle, all right, for a polar bear, is it would actually, it will numb their tongue. Like their tongue will get numb. Okay. And so they're licking that, that knife that's, that's really what's under it. They have no idea. That's what they're doing because they just think it's a little blood popsicle. They don't realize what they're doing, and their tongue is numb. And over time, literally, you can start thinking about it, they will literally devour themselves, okay? It's graphic. And that's how they will hunt polar bears. And so why do I say that? Because that's exactly what sin does to us. I use that extreme illustration because that sin is no less than that. Sin is no different than that. Is sin looks like this attractive popsicle that's really got a knife under it. And you start licking and it's like, oh, that tastes pretty good. And then before you know it, you've devoured yourself. Sin is deceitful and deceptive. And so when David looked at and dwelled on Bathsheba, he's in this season of laziness. He took the first lick of the knife. That's what he did. And so laziness, particularly in this context, leads to lust. Laziness leads to lust. And so for a lot of us, our greatest temptations come when we are tired and when we have nothing to do. And that's exactly what happens with David. He took the first lick of the knife and sin always starts small. That's why it's deceptive. Okay, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, highly recommend, uh, says this. He, he doesn't spend much time talking about the actual battle. He talks about the preparation of the battle. And what Sun Tzu says is, is do not linger in dangerously isolating situations. He says, if you linger in dangerously isolating situations, you're almost guaranteed to lose the battle. That's what David's doing. He's lingering in a dangerously isolating situation. He didn't realize that that's where this is headed. There was a story a few years ago, sorry for another graphic one, but there was, um, there was a, a girl who um, basically got raped and the, the guys were like posting about it or whatever. And she ended up taking her life because of what happens. And they ended up going to court because of it. And it, it completely changed their lives. And one of the guys that got up there, he said, he goes, through tears, he was like, I never wanted this to happen. I never knew this was going to happen. And I actually believe him. Like he never thought that it would lead there. But that's why sin is deceptive. is because in the moment, you don't think that that's where it's going to lead. And so that's what you see is sin always starts small. And then you keep going through the story and why it's, de- it's deceptive is David not only um, put himself in that situation, he lingered on that thought that was in his line of sight. So this guy named James Clear, he wrote a book called Atomic Habits. And he said that there was a hospital that wanted people to drink more water than Coke because people were drink popping Cokes all the time. I don't know. And so what they started to do is they would just put water at the ends of aisles, and so what happened was, is it was the, like the last thing people would see when they walked through the aisles. The uh, sales of water went up 25% just because people were seeing it more. 
at the end of aisles. Coke likes to be at the end of aisles in grocery stores because they found by simply doing that, their sales go up 45% just by being in your line of sight. And so what we see is, tends to be what we do. And so that's what you see with David is that we tend to do what we see. And so the question is, what do you put before your eyes? What do you let come into your eyes? And what do you continue to get curious about instead of shutting it down? Because what happened with David is that sin, the deceptiveness of it, it started with distorted curiosity. See, curiosity is a great thing. It leads to innovation and things like that. But when we give into curiosity in distorted ways, it never is satisfied. So you want more and more and more. And so sin is deceptive. Why do I say all that? Because I just want to ask this question. Is, is there anything like that in your life today? Do you have anything in your life today that's like that? That's like that first lick of the knife that's just deceptive. And you're like, that's ah, not that big of a deal. But actually it could be because sin is deceptive. The second thing is sin is destructive. It gets worse. So you see this in verse five. She comes up, she says, I am pregnant. That's just the first issue. Okay, later on, David loses a child because of this story. Um, he experiences family dysfunction because of this moment. His own, one of his own sons, Absalom, is going to try to overthrow him as king. And so sin is destructive. See, one of the things that a fool does is a fool separates inputs from outcomes. A fool separates inputs from outcomes. And that's what happens in this story is he wasn't thinking about what I'm inputting is going to eventually become an outcome. What a fool does is say, I'm just going to do the input I want and I'm not going to worry about the outcome. Well, one day inputs lead to outcomes. And if you input sin and you play with it, in the end, it will lead to destruction. Okay. And specifically his area, that's where I told you it's going to get real today, was in the area of, of sex. That's ultimately the area that this happened with. And so for us, if you've been a Boy Scout, which I was, Eagle Scout, shout out to, to that accomplishment, is um, we love to like mess around with fire. I don't know if any of you are like that. It's just kind of fun to see what happens. And we would do some like wild stuff to test the boundaries of fire. And so I have learned, because I've seen some great things with fire, and I have seen some terrifying things with fire in my life. And I've learned that fire is a gift inside of boundaries, right? Like if you're sitting by a campfire, it's cold outside, it brings warmth, it brings enjoyment, it brings pleasure, it brings light, helps you see, it's a beautiful thing. But when fire exceeds its boundaries, what does it do? It causes destruction, it burns people. And that's exactly how sex is. Sex is like a fire. It is intended by God, it's a gift from God. It is intended to be enjoyed in the boundaries of marriage, inside those boundaries, it provides light, it provides warmth to a covenant relationships, but outside of those boundaries, it can burn you and it can burn other people. And I'm going to tell you, if you've, you know, if you've experienced this, God's grace is bigger than that. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but this is the reality. And so for us, we might go, oh man, is that just David? No, it's not just David, because according to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, National surveys indicate that 15% of married women and 25% of married men have extramarital affairs today, okay? When you adjust that number, though, to include emotional and sexual relationships without intercourse, it jumps up to 35% of women and 55% of men. So this is an absolute 
epidemic in our society today. Okay, so sexuality is a gift. But I don't have to tell you this because many of us are experiencing it, that when we use it in the wrong boundaries, it burns people. And a lot of you are here today and you'd be like, man, honestly, it's burning me right now. And I'm going to give you hope later. And I'm also going to start a series next week on how to change. So there's areas in your life you're like, man, I want to change. I'm going to show you next week. We're going to do a five-week series on how God changes us. But in the meantime, the inputs in our culture are things like porn. They're things like this hookup culture that you experience in high school, which is like, I'm just going to kind of hook up with whoever. And what that's doing, the input is training us for variety. And variety trains you for divorce and broken relationships. That's why we have the statistics we have. Because the inputs that get put in when you're younger come out when you're older. And so sin causes destruction. Make no mistake about it. You're like, gosh, this is a really intense message. We have to understand the seriousness of sin before we can delight in grace. And so the second thing, oh, this one gets worse, sorry, is that sin is deep. Sin is deep. So it's deceitful and deceptive. It's destructive and it's deep. And so this story, it's not just a warning. It's not just like, oh, look at David. Let that warn you. It's actually a mirror for every single one of us. What do I mean by that? This is a crazy statement and I'm going to make it. And most people in this room don't believe it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Every single person in this room, including me, including me, is capable of committing the exact same sins that David did. Okay, I want you to think about that. Because most people in this room don't truly believe that. That every single one of us, including me in this room, are capable of doing the exact same sins that David did. Why do I know that? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. All right, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? John Owen says this, the seed of every sin is in every heart. The seed of every sin is in every heart. See, what the Bible teaches is that sin is not so much behavior as it is a heart condition that leads to behavior. So think about it like this. An acorn doesn't take up much space, does it? But if you plant it, you let it grow and you give it time, it can build a gigantic oak tree. And so a small thought in the heart can lead to devastating actions. That's where sin starts. And it's a lot easier to squash an acorn than take down an oak tree. And so sin is deep. I may not be living the same way that gets people on a tabloid headline, but there are thoughts in my heart that if I linger on it, it can take me there very quickly. Okay, one of my friends who went to college at, uh, well, I'm not gonna say where he went, that may give away too much, but he followed the Lord in high school and he got into some really crazy stuff in college, like very quickly. And I asked him, I said, what's the biggest lesson that you learned? And he said, you can find yourself very quickly doing things that you never thought you would do. You never thought you would do. And so what I would say is because sin is deep is don't put up with self-absorption right now. Don't put up with lustful fantasies, with jealousy, with gossip. These acorns turn into trees. They always start that way. Sin is deep. It's in every single one of us. And therefore, it shouldn't shock us. Sin should not shock us at all. Church should be a place where sin is not shocking. A lot of times sin shocks us. People will come up to me and be like, can you believe that he did that or that she did that? Like full disclosure, spring break trips have happened and so many people come up to me like, senior spring break trips, can you believe people do that? Like repeating the parents. And you know what I say? I can't believe that. I can totally believe that. The reason why I can believe that is because sin, while it's sad, is never shocking. Sin is not shocking at all. Nothing that you tell me would shock me. Truly wouldn't. 
And so I tell you that because if you are kind of like the good church person, that you have this identity of like, I've always got to be good. My parents want me to be good. But you've got a sin in your life that you've been hiding. Freedom is found in confessing that sin. There's nothing you could say that would shock anyone here because we are all sinners. There's a gracious God on the other side. All right, we got to keep going here. So why do I say that? You're like, oh my gosh, that's intense. Sin is deceptive. It's, it's destructive and it's deep. That's like really harsh. We may not come back next week. Well, here's why I say that. I don't say any of that to shame anyone because it's actually for me too. I say this because only when we admit the power and the seriousness of sin are we prepared to experience the freedom and joy of what Jesus came to do. The reason that a lot of us don't experience the amazing freedom and joy of the gospel is because we don't think sin's that big of a deal because we live in a culture that tells us it's not. And so what do we do with that? We turn to the power of grace. It's way more powerful than our sin. Once we're flattened by the power of our sin, we're prepared to be comforted and uplifted by the power of God's amazing grace. And so we see two things. Grace does two things to us. Grace pursues and grace pardons. Grace pursues and grace pardons. So this is chapter 12, verses one to eight. This is in the aftermath. David thought he got away with it, but God loves him too much to let him get away with his sin. And so the Lord sent Nathan to David. David has a friend. His name's Nathan. Came to him and he said to him, he's going to tell him a story. He says, there's two men in a certain city. One's rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he, he brought it up. They grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel, drink from his cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock and hurry to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And here it is. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Okay, now, that's not saying you're the man. It's saying, it's not what it means. You know what I mean? It's saying you are that guy. Like that's describing you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you more. So David's sin originated because he doubted God's goodness and he didn't enjoy what God had already given him. And so what does God do? God sends Nathan the prophet to David to reveal his sin. When I was in high school, I had an area of my life that looked basically like everybody else's, but I successfully kind of hid it from my Bible study. And one day someone at the school told my Bible study leader, basically, and he came up to me lovingly, graciously said, hey, this is what I've been told. I've been told that there's an area of your life that looks like everybody else's and you've kind of been hiding it. And while it stung me, it actually led to so much freedom because I didn't have to hide it anymore. I was just like, yeah, you're right. This is an area that is like everybody else's and I need grace. And so that being exposed was the path to freedom and the path to joy. And so why does Nathan do this? Why doesn't he just come out and say, you're condemned, David, you messed up. Why does he tell this story? Because what God is doing here is God is drawing out his guilt so he can restore him to grace. God is going for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. That's what God does. He doesn't go for conviction, or he doesn't go for condemnation. He goes for conviction and conversion. He loves David so much 
that he's going to pursue David in his sin. So the people I worry about in high school are the people that get away with their sin. Because the more you get away with your sin, the more that hardens your heart. When you get caught, that is actually one of the kindest things God can do to you is expose your sin because that's him pursuing you in love and in kindness so that he can come in and cover it with grace. Living in sin is miserable. That's what David experienced. It's so miserable. And God loves you too much to let you do that. And so grace pursues us. John 3, 17, right after 3, 16. It's, uh, if you can do math, right? It says, God did not, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came in that the world might be saved through him. He's not speaking a voice of condemnation. That's Satan. That's not Jesus. When we hide our sin, we hear this voice of condemnation. When we bring it out, we experience Jesus' voice of, of love and pardon. Luke 19, 10, he says, he came to seek and save the lost. Like that was his mission. He literally came for people that mess up all the time. This is his mission statement. A lot of us, we think we got to clean ourselves up to go back to God. Or we have to feel bad enough first. That's not what Jesus says. He pursues us in love and says, come to me as you are with no qualifications. And I'll end with this. Grace also pardons. This is verse 13. This is what David says to Nathan. He confesses, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so there are consequences in David's life. You can go back and read them. There are real legitimate consequences. But in the end, God forgives his sin. And I want you to think about this. This bothers some people. Like some people are like, that's, that's too easy. Like that's it? Like David just did that. And God says, I will put away your sin. Okay, that's crazy. Like that's just that simple. It's easy to be bothered by mercy unless you're the one who needs it, Right? Like there's something about grace that bothers everyone except the person who actually needs it. And if you think about it, who here is without sin, right? And in this context, even sexual sin of some kind, like so many of us in the room would say, that's me. And so the question is, how can God assure us of pardon, no matter what we've done, no matter how bad it is? Does he just brush over it? I want to end with you thinking about this. There's this interesting comparison that this author makes between David and Nathan and then Jesus and Pilate. Nathan says to David, he says, you are the man. He exposes his sin. Pilate says to Jesus, right before he's going to be crucified, he says, behold the man. There are two different courtrooms, David and Nathan. David's exposed of his sin, but he gets to go away with forgiveness in part. And Jesus is the one who's truly innocent who has done nothing but goodness in his life, and he takes the judgment seat that people like David, people like us, should sit in. In that day, with Jesus, nobody shows up for Jesus. No one showed up for him on the cross. No one shows up for him before Pilate. The judge of all the earth, the only one who's done nothing wrong, dies condemned so that we, a bunch of Davids, could receive pardon and forgiveness. See, a lot of us, we read the Bible and we think it's like, oh, you got to be a good person. So God will be accepted. This is how you live. That's not the point of the Bible. The Bible is all about how there's a God who continually gives his grace to people who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've gotten it. And he just keeps piling on grace because that's who he is. And so even if you think you're one of the best moral people 
in your high school, you cannot overcome your own sins, your own flaws, your own self-centeredness. But if you turn to Jesus, you'll be saved and there's grace waiting for you. And so what do we do with that? There's three things we do. Number one, as John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Number two, be a Nathan to people. Do you have Nathans in your life who love you enough to speak truth to you, but not in condemnation, to take you to Jesus's pardon. And then the last thing is no matter what you've done, where you are, what you've thought, what you've said, there is pardon and assurance available because of Jesus. Then with this, one of my, one of my really good friends, uh, he had a, a really tough season and he ended up having to go to rehab. And I remember on the way, he just felt horrible. I mean, he had wrecked his life basically. And I had the, the blessing of getting to be the last person to talk to him before he went in. And right before he went in, all I did is I texted him Romans 8.1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't get to talk to me because he had to give his phone up, but he later told me that that text right before he went in completely changed the direction he was going on, being assured that despite everything that he had done, all the problems he had caused, that Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus loves him. The more we understand the seriousness of our sin, the more we'll be blown away by the fact that his grace is bigger than that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you remind us our sin's a really big deal and we live in a culture that acts like it's not. And so, Lord, we just want to boldly admit that we are sinners and it's a big deal. But, Lord, we thank you for the story that points us to Jesus who in our place condemned, he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. That's what we get to sing. Thank you that we get to sing amazing love. How can it be, Lord, that Jesus gave his life for us, that he's the only one that deserved to go free, and yet he took our place so that we could go free. Lord, I pray that we would just soak in the unbelievable news of your love and grace in Jesus and that that would change us. We pray that in his name. Amen.